so that he can face the new year courageously. And you get a few minutes of Jim Kluth before 2022. So um, I am glad that you're all here, and I'm delighted to be able to share the Word of God with you. Um, you may have noticed that there was no Sunday school this morning, and that's only true this morning. Uh, there will be Sunday school again starting on January 2nd. If you have not plugged into an adult class, I encourage you to do that. So there's, uh, I'm doing Christian history made easy, um, and it really is easy. It's, it's very accessible. Uh, and Carrie Brand is teaching a women's only class, um, and that we called that the power of testimony because when women share their testimonies with each other, it is powerful. So uh, please plug into one of those. We're excited. So, I was thinking about the old statement. Do I got to do I got to dismiss kids? Oh. Um, children ages four through first grade. It looks like you might get Neil and Caitlin and somebody else over there. I can't see because of the bright lights. Anyway, if you're going to children's church, now's the time. So, children are small. Good things come in small packages. That was my opening thought for the message. Good things come in small packages. And um, we know that's true. And I think that's one of those things that adults say to children to get them kind of excited when that that gift shows up. And it's just not very big, right? Like um, one of the presents I got right before the school season was done, before Christmas, I got a little tiny mitten. But it was filled with Ghirardelli chocolates that I have already consumed. Um, And it also doesn't take much space to hold a gift card, does it? Uh, And in fact, I have saved one Linder chocolate for one lucky one of you. So the first person who gets to me under the age of 20 after the service, you get the Linder chocolate. So... That's waiting for you up here. But good things come in small packages. And we often look at Christmas from the small package side of things, right? We have Mary, an ordinary Jewish girl who is betrothed to Joseph, who the Greek says is a tecton, and everybody says carpenter, but it's more likely stonemason, which takes out the romanticism from that even a little bit more. Um, And the Christmas story focuses on little people and little places, right? Places like Nazareth, places like Bethlehem, not huge population centers. And the Christmas story culminates with the birth of a seven or eight pound human who gets wrapped in strips of cloth and laid in a manger, an animal feeding trough. It's the ultimate in humble. But this morning, I'd like to suggest that though there are thousands of nameless children that come into the world every day, born into humble circumstances, Jesus' birth is precisely the opposite because the most powerful being in the universe, the second person of the Godhead, chose to make his entrance into humanity as its weakest member in that moment. And while Matthew and Luke make clear the details of the human side surrounding Jesus' birth, 
John's gospel emphasizes the transcendent nature of Jesus and who he is. So turn with me to John chapter 1, and we're going to see Christmas from an entirely different point of view. Maybe we'll even see a cosmic Christmas. Let's pray, and then we'll get into the Word. Father, it is your Word. You are our Creator. You are our Sustainer. Uh, you are the one who makes it possible for us to come together and seek you. And so this morning we pray as we open your word that we might be challenged by it and also encouraged by it and that we might take away something that we haven't seen before. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. In the beginning was the Word. There are distinct echoes here of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created, right? John is immediately connecting us to the meta-narrative, the big story of the whole universe that begins with God creating all things by his powerful Word. And speaking of the word, word, John specifically chose the Greek word logos here because it communicated powerfully to Jews and Greeks. If you were a Jewish person, you would be familiar with the Old Testament idea that God created using his word. His word was an extension of himself and carried his creative power. Think back to Genesis 1. How did God accomplish the creation of light? He said, 
let there be light. And there was light. He spoke the whole universe into being. And similarly, throughout Scripture, God acts by speaking. How many of the prophetic books begin with something like, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, or the word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, or the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. So the Jewish person would have no trouble identifying the Logos with God himself. But to the Greek speaker, Logos meant word, statement, message, word while it is still in the mind. In other words, the thought. So Logos is the thought. And then most specifically, rational principle undergirding the whole universe. Jesus is both of these categories. He is the word of the Father. He is the reason and the sustaining power behind the whole universe. And then we get to the rest of this famous verse. So in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Daniel B. Wallace, professor of New Testament at DTS, that's Dallas Theological Seminary, since the early 1980s, writes about how in this extremely compact statement, John is both expressing who Jesus is and guarding against two or three heresies at the same time. How John does this actually gets into the details of the Greek grammar. Wallace writes, that is to say, the word order tells us that Jesus Christ has all the divine attributes of the Father. Lack of the definite article tells us that Jesus Christ is not the Father. So we know from these verses that Jesus is fully God, the same God as God the Father, yet is distinct from the Father. And Jesus did not come into existence at the first Christmas. Jesus has always existed, just as verse 2 says, he was with God in the beginning. Now we probably think of God the Father as the one who did the creating when the issue of creation comes up, and that's good. He did. But all three persons of the Trinity were involved in the creation of the universe. This verse teaches us that everything was created through Jesus. Now that makes perfect sense when we look at Psalm 33, verse 6, where the psalmist wrote, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was used in the time of Jesus, the word word in that verse is, you guessed it, logos. Paul brings out the same point in Colossians 1, verse 16. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. So all creation was created through Jesus. But even more than that, life is in Jesus. Life is that indescribable thing that everyone wants. We want to feel fully alive. We want to have that combination of purpose, security, exhilaration, and wonder And to get it, we often look for it in the wrong places. Your bank account is not your source of life. The number of likes you get on social media is not your source of life. 
how strong your physical body is, is not your source of life. That girl or that guy who works in the cubicle across from you is not your source of life. That classic car that you've been waiting to buy for years is not your source of life. No, John writes that true life is found in Jesus. True spiritual life bubbles out of him the same way water flows from a spring or molten lava pours down the side of a volcano. In the end of verse 4, John transitions to talking about Jesus as the light. He contrasts the light of Jesus with the darkness and asserts that the darkness has not overcome it. And that's the fantastic thing. If we take from a physical example, light always wins because darkness is not actually a thing. I don't know if you've thought about that ever. Darkness is only the absence of light. As soon as we introduce light, the darkness has to dissipate in proportion to the amount of light that is present. A small beam can cut through the darkness. A huge source of radiation, like the sun, blows the darkness away entirely. And so light always wins. And it's the same thing in the spiritual realm. If we shine the light of Christ faithfully and fervently, if we live lives saturated by his goodness and speak the truth in love, if we pray for his empowerment and preach his word, darkness gets no choice but to flee. But I suspect that the American church and the American believers have failed to do this on many occasions, sometimes preferring to cozy up with the darkness instead of calling it darkness and turning the lights on it. And the results have been predictable. We've arrived at a place where the church has far little to affect on culture. And in fact, I heard a stat just the other day that 6% of Gen Z holds to a biblical worldview. Now, I can't tell you the accuracy of that statistic or not, um, because probably the people who gave the statistic were hoping to sell something by giving the statistic, but it is possible. Um, and it's beyond question that the American church of the last 100 years, um, when they were shining the light of Christ, it seemed like maybe they were holding their hand over the beam or not shining it at all. So if it seems to you that the dark things are triumphing, I'd like to ask you, how much of your time are you spending in building God's kingdom? And how much of your time are you spending on your own amusements? Remember what we heard in verse 4. In him was life. In Jesus is the life. The other things can be good. For example, the Kluths are leaving on vacation as soon as this service is over. But we're not leaving on vacation because the vacation is our source of life. We're leaving on vacation because we're asking God to use it to refresh us so that we can come back and do the things that provide life for us and provide life for those that we minister to. We're at verses 6 through 9. 6 through 9, there came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He only came as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. 
These verses focus on John the baptizer, or who we would traditionally call John the Baptist. God sent him to testify to the light, but he was not the light. John's goal was the same as our goal. He was testifying to the light so that everyone might believe in Jesus. All men, all colors, all races, all ethnicities. Notice how brief this section is. John the evangelist, who wrote the Gospel of John, didn't want the attention on John the Baptist, and there's almost no information here about John the Baptist except information that directly relates to Jesus. He wanted the attention on Jesus. How about you? Do you want the attention on Jesus? You know, we all radiate something. What comes through your life, your behaviors, your attitudes, your interests? When people finish talking with you, do they come away with a conviction that there goes a man or a woman who loves Jesus deeply? Or do your words and actions and your manner of life provide a distraction to the gospel? Nothing about John the Baptist's life was a distraction to the gospel. That guy was 100% on message. Verses 10 through 13. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. In these verses, we come upon a sad reality. Jesus came to his own people, and they didn't recognize him as God or receive him as their Messiah. And I find it sad enough when people reject people who are members of their own communities. But imagine telling the Son of God that he isn't wanted around here. Still, this happens within the sovereignty of God. It was prophesied that he would be rejected. Isaiah wrote this when he was writing the Isaiah 53 passage about the suffering Messiah. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and he, we esteemed him not. That's Isaiah 53.3. But notice that it came about through the spiritual insensitivity of Israel. The leaders at that time were so focused on preserving their own power and position in society that they had no use for the gift that God sent them of his son. They truly were ever seeing but never perceiving. But that doesn't stop God. He knew that they were going to do this in advance and he used it for his redemptive purposes. So we see God's sovereign foreknowledge worked out even in human failure. A minute ago, I spoke of the sad reality. It is immediately followed up in the text by the glad reality. To everyone who received him, Jesus gave the right to become a child of God. 
Now that means a couple of things. First, it means that you aren't born with the right to be God's child. I'm going to say that again. You are not born with the right to be God's child. In fact, the Bible says that you are born as a descendant of Adam, meaning that you inherited Adam's sin and Adam's failure to love and trust God. But you desperately need to become a child of God because the Bible also says that children of Adam are slated for destruction. And this status, child of God, is something that only God can give you. And He told you how to do it in this verse, in verse 12. It says, if you receive Christ, if you believe in His name, you get to be called a child of God. You get to be rescued from God's wrath against sin and sinners and to share in the abundant blessings of Jesus who, if you are God's child, now Jesus is your elder brother. Paul also makes this abundantly clear in Galatians 4. He writes, But when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Nathan delved into this a little bit on Christmas Eve. This also means that the world is in error when it tries to teach that we are all God's children. That is simply not the case. That contradicts the clear teaching of Scripture that you become a part of God's forever family by faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. So this being a child of God is a supernatural spiritual birth, and John distinguishes it from just being born as a natural child of human parents. John 1.14 The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. There's a whole sermon in that verse. The glorious second person of the Trinity became sarks. That word literally means flesh, bones, muscles, tendons, and sinews. And tented or encamped among us. To stay with sarks for a moment... Commentators describe this word as a strong word in the Greek. It was not that Jesus seemed like he had a human body or possessed a human body like a spirit taking over a body. In fact, those were heresies that the early church successfully fought off. In particular, second century Gnosticism taught that everything physical was bad and that only the spiritual realm was good. And it might seem like second century Gnosticism is 18 or 19 centuries removed from us, but that is not really the case. Some of the biggest issues in our public life right now are directly related to Gnostic thought. Let me give you an example. The fight over transgender issues is rooted in Gnostic thought. How does this go? If the body is unimportant then my actual biology doesn't matter. My true self 
is the self that is in my mind or spirit. So just because my body is male, I'm not actually male. Or just because my body is female, I'm not actually female. This biology isn't the real me. That is the thinking that's become very prevalent in some subsections of our society. But the incarnation of Jesus demonstrates that just because something is physical does not make it bad. If that were true, Jesus, who had no sin and never sinned, could not have taken on a physical body. This has massive implications for how we think about the human body and how we treat our bodies. And that is the topic for another sermon. Let's leave it here. It's no accident and it's no contradiction that the Apostle Paul was able to say that our bodies, if we've been redeemed by Jesus Christ, are the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in us and therefore it is our obligation to honor God with our bodies. We have seen his glory, says the next clause. If you struggle to accept the deity of Jesus Christ, I mean, how could the eternal God take on human flesh, right? If you struggle to accept the deity of Christ, then this chapter, this whole book, is written specifically for you. John will spend his entire gospel emphasizing the deity of Jesus Christ. At the end of John 8, John makes Jesus, Jesus makes a cryptic statement. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And this statement is cryptic to us, but to the people who were standing in front of him, they knew exactly what he was saying. He was declaring himself one and the same substance as the eternal God of the universe. And that explains why they picked up stones to stone him, because that's the proper penalty for blasphemy. If he's blaspheming, you pick up the stones, you stone him. The only problem, of course, is that they were in error because Jesus actually was God. And so for him to say, I am God, in so many words, is not blasphemy. So, in fact, John wraps up his gospel with another ringing affirmation of this truth. He writes, but these are written, these things, these, these lines, right, these, this book, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, John twenty thirty one. And Jesus was full of grace. How much we need grace. Grace is the concept that is so missing from the horrors of our world. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but over the past 20 years, things have become a little more intolerant. Um, when anyone violates the unwritten standards of the cultural elites, even unknowingly, they get canceled. That is, they're removed from public life and they no longer have a platform or a forum. And in many cases, there's no opportunity to be restored. This failure to understand grace is actually at the root of many problems outside the church and inside of it. When a person experiences Jesus' grace, it changes them on the inside. When I remember what I was before I met Jesus and how He accepted me and He loved me and He welcomed me in even though I had committed many, many sins against Him, 
it softens me towards other people. It helps me view others through the lens of love and forgiveness. And this is key. Even when they don't deserve it. Especially when they don't deserve it. Grace makes it possible for us to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, as Paul encourages us to do. And Jesus was full of truth. Everywhere, it seems, in public life, the lying has reached new levels. Our culture is saturated with falsehoods. Our news stories, our movies, and our political actors regularly sacrifice truth for some value they consider to be more important, usually tied to their personal gain. Truth is in rough shape in our country in the moment. We suffer from cultural lies, individual lies, lies within the church, spoken or lived. To this mess, Jesus brings the truth because he himself is the truth. But note that we would not be able to bear the blazing sun of truth shining down on us if it were not for Jesus' grace comforting us and assuring us of his compassion for us at the same time. John 15, 1 through 18. John 1, 15 through 18. John testifies concerning him. He cries out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. So John the baptizer acknowledges the eternal nature of Jesus in verse 15. Jesus was actually born after John, and in their culture, the older person was supposed to receive greater honor than the younger. But John knows that these are not even legit categories, because when we're talking about comparing him, a mortal man, to the eternal Son of God, there just isn't even a way to do the comparison. The next verse says, we have all received one blessing after another. This is a verse people like me tend to gloss over, but we shouldn't. What blessings have you received as a result of Jesus' grace? I'd like to say a few of them. Forgiveness of sins, adoption into God's family, purpose that lasts through this life and into the next, the possibility of healed relationships, sanctification, the indwelling Holy Spirit, fellowship with other believers, the privilege of representing Jesus in this world, the Word of God to guide and comfort us, and the certainty that when Jesus comes again, we will be rescued from the coming wrath and welcomed into God's presence, not with a righteousness of our own, but a righteousness that we've received from the Christ who died for us and was raised to life again. John hints at this in verse 17 when he sets up the contrast between the law and the gospel. The law is great and glorious in its own regard as it gives us a standard to follow 
and a curb for our sinful tendencies. But the most important thing that the law does is demonstrate to us that we don't measure up and that we could never keep all of God's commands in our own strength. And so we find here that grace and truth are far better than the law. And verse 18, too, is an important verse. Does the Bible teach that Jesus is really God? It does. John 1.18 is a bold declaration of the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is named both God the one and only and is described as being at the Father's side. Therefore, He is Almighty God and yet distinct from the Father, which is exactly consistent with what we heard in the beginning of the chapter and it's consistent with what Orthodox Christians have been teaching for the last 2,000 years. Let me finish by saying that the child in the manger was absolutely a human baby, but so much more than a human baby. He was also the eternal Son of God. He was the light bringer. He was the source of life, the embodiment of truth, and the dispenser of grace. He was the teacher of teachers and the radiance of God's glory. He was the word that became flesh and tented among us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is all of those things still today, the King of kings and the living Lord of history. One day, all mortal flesh will keep silence as we bow before him. So let's keep our cosmic king central in our minds and hearts as we face 2022. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up and provide one more song for us to sing. And I'm going to ask you to pray with me as they do that. Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity this morning to meditate on your incarnation. We thank you that you did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made yourself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. And being found in human likeness, uh, you, you walked with us. You walked the dusty paths of this earth. You dealt with human sin. You taught us truth. You brought us life. And ultimately, you died for us. Lord, if there's somebody who hasn't received you, listening to the sound of my voice, I pray that today would be the day that they would agree with you that they cannot save themselves and that they need a Savior who is Jesus Christ. And so we ask you, Jesus, this morning to be glorified in our music and to be glorified in our 2022. And we pray it all in your precious name. Amen and amen.
receive these words as you go. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And all God's people said, let's go serve him. Do we need to serve him by changing the chair structure at all? No? All right. Let's go serve him. Have a great week. Oh, yes, we do. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. <laughs>